You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to the second part of this special episode. We're talking to James Acaster as he returns to the podcast. Uh, if you are a member of the Insiders Club, which if you're not, you can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, then you will already have been able to see this entire episode and literally see it, not just hear it, because it has full video as well. More on that later. Um, but for now, we are going to talk to James about the development journey of James's latest show, Heckler's Welcome. We're going to talk about the potentially false, potentially true, is it true or is it false, the idea of a perfect audience. Uh, and we're also going to deal with the inner crisis of being a comedian. Then later in the second half of the episode, uh, the second half of the second half, that's Q4, arguably, um, we're going to talk about Ghostbusters. So uh, lots to enjoy here. Let's get stuck in. This is James Acaster. Let's talk a bit more about the show because we're, we're making reference to it without having really set up exactly what it is. Right. So, I mean, every, almost everyone will know, but for the rare people that don't, the show that you're touring at the moment, how much how much of the tour have you got left now? We've got uh, three more days here in Bristol and then uh, I think we've got four days in Leeds, four days in Belfast, uh, some about three catering dates. And I think that's this year done. And then next year, there's like five other towns or cities that's like four dates in each. But then, but to be honest, I think, yeah, most of it will happen next year. I think there's also going to be a bunch more London dates added and um, hopefully some American dates. So like, you know, I'm probably not halfway through it by the end of this year. Definitely not at the minute. To establish what the show is, can you please give me the two-minute bullshit that you would say on a normal radio interview? <laughs> sure. The show, is, the show is called Heckler's Welcome. Uh, the audience is allowed to do whatever they want. I have written a show, but they're allowed to ruin it. And the reason that you did that, the reason that you've created that, is because you became aware that you had a problem with being heckled on stage. Yeah, I've been aware of it since the start, but I became aware that it was never going to stop in 2019. <laughs> so, like, it was like, I think at the beginning, when I started out as a stand-up, I was, you know, all you do on the open mic circuit, open mic comics just say to each other, because, like, you know, you've just done a gig that is unplayable, and you all feel a little bit weird after the gig. Um, some of you have had a good one, some of you haven't, and it's all, but all of your emotions are all over the place. And all of you, often at the end of those gigs, will say to each other, oh, imagine one day when you just got your own audience and they're all there to see you. I bet that's great. And then and I met, really kept me going through those, like, weird, you know, those weird years of just like traveling around the country, losing money, doing gigs to no one that didn't go very well. I'd think oh, I'll be Ross Noble one day. And like, you know, that, that'd be cool. And, um, 
so you know at those gigs if someone heckles you and you respond aggressively or whatever who cares no one's you're not anyone you're just an open micer and then you start to do well or pick it up it's hard to become your job but they're still not there to see you they're not really your audience so fuck them they're they're they're, they're shouting out they're talking over you they're doing all this because this this is a riffraff that i'm going to get rid of and i'm going to purify my i'm going to have this audience that are just there to see me so i can afford to kind of point out to that guy why he's rubbish and then they'll never come and see me again and i'm i'm weeding them out and I'm doing all, I'm, I'm fucking, I'm kitson. And then, um, and then you end up, you know, I ended up 2019 and this tour, you know, my Netflix shows had been out, um, off menu was doing well. I done Taskmaster. This is as much as like, I'm ever going to have my own audience. The tour sold out really quickly. It was in, you know, thousand seaters for the first time. Oh, here we here we go. This is going to be great, and uh, and they were hectic still. They were talking over me still. They were on their phones, lighting their faces up. They they were quiet and not really laughing. And and I was and I just was still responding the same way, you know, just having a go at them, throwing the gigs. And I felt bad about it for a few tours before then. You know, there was like a few tours before then. Probably from my third show onwards, so that's like 2013 the tour was, I was like, oh, that was bad. You know, you, you know, it's 50 people in an art centre, but you went out and told them they were shit. Um, I don't think you needed to have done that. Let's try and not do that again. And then with each tour, I would start it. I remember starting a tour with, one of, with a new tour manager, maybe in 2016 or something, and saying to him, like, if I throw a gig and talk, um, can you email my agent and like snitch on me? And he was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's weird. But like, maybe you just don't do that. I was like, yeah, I'll try. And I'm like, yeah, for three dates in, I'm telling them they're shit. And I was really aware of it. But then when it was the 2019 tour was the one where I was like, okay, this is really never going to end. And because, because with that tour in particular, that was the kind of the apotheosis of you're doing what you want specifically to your crowd in big rooms that sell out immediately, which means they all must be fans. Like the, the circumstances can't be more optimal than this. And yet still. Yeah, but also realising that they're not all going to be fans and you, that's never going to be the case. I, I bumped into Chris Addison once when I was like, I was new. I was like, I've probably done one or two solo shows and you know, sparsely populated tours. And uh, I was halfway through when it wasn't going well. And I did a charity gig at Bloomsbury that Chris Addison was on and he was leaving as I was arriving. And he, and he was always been very supportive to me from like day one. And he was like, how's it going? How, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm doing a tour. It's really hard. They're, obviously they're not there to see me, but like, it gets better, right? And he was like, nope. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> he said, nope, because even if you sold out a thousand seater, there's like a really hardcore fan of yours who's bought three of their mates who've never seen you, don't know what you do. Um, or there are people who saw you on one thing, thought you were pretty good, bought tickets just to see if you're funny live and actually mm-hmm. the stand-up's not their cup of tea. Um, so that's never going to go away. It's never going to... And I, I kind of was like, all right, I believed him, but I still didn't address my behaviour on stage. I was, sure, I was still like, no, no, they need to change. They're the ones who are wrong. And then like, yeah, in 2019, it was the big feeling of that, of like, okay... 
they really have just brought their mates along or they've seen me on something that this isn't rep- even if they'd seen my Netflix shows to be honest I was like in that I'm saying I'm an undercover cop I'm on jury service and now I'm going on stage and I'm talking about having suicidal thoughts like this is not the same comedian that they got into from that to be fair to them you know it is a shift and I'm asking them to go with it and run with it like they're people who go to the Edinburgh Festival every year and it's exciting for them when a comic pivots but like if I'd gone to see Ross Noble before I became a stand-up and he'd gone on stage and then very seriously talked about his mental health I'd have been like what the fuck mm-hmm. I came to see this guy because I really like his like whimsical improvisation and now he's just talking about uh, being depressed and I might have enjoyed it but I wouldn't have necessarily been the loudest laugher in the room mm-hmm. you know I would have been like going, okay so this comedy can do this and I might have even got away thinking that's fascinating but I wouldn't have like he wouldn't have known that from me because I would have been sitting there going oh okay this is a new thing for me so yeah so 2019 I was just like this isn't on them anymore this is really it's really not on them like they half the time you know they're actually a good audience and you're bored with the show, you're insecure about the show and yourself as a stand-up. Um, you know, you ultimately don't think you're good at this. It doesn't matter what people say. So, like, you do have this insecurity when a joke doesn't land as well as it usually does or someone looks a bit bored and you, you go for that. And there were gigs on that tour. There's a gig in Leeds where, like, the audience were phenomenal. And there was one guy who was sat in, like, a royal box, which jutted out onto the stage so he was lit like I was and he was just an old boy he was like sat on the lip a bit like that looking at and he was just completely dead faced but the rest of them it was like the best audience I'd had all tour and I was just like it was just him and I just started going like you alright? what's going on up here? like and and eventually he was like yeah I went to see you I do your book tour and I liked that but I don't like it and he I pushed him to the point where he had to say I don't like this mm-hmm. and then I've and then the gig just went so just dismantle it all in the bin doesn't matter that all you lot are loving it fuck this guy then other people started to heckle me as the gig went on because I basically just like you know I'd stopped it from being this nice gig and I remember coming up and going absolutely 100% your fault no one else to blame for that whatsoever why did you do that why are you focusing on that guy? And knowing more and more as that show was going on, like, okay, you either you either quit or you sort this out. And then at the end of the tour, I was like, right, let's just, I'm going to take some time off and not do stand-up for a bit because I was like, you know, basically for, for however many years it had been at that point, you know, it was tw- end of 2019, I started in 2008. And like, I was like, you have not really given yourself, on average, you've worked every single night for those yeah, you know, she's done multiple gigs a night. You've done also so like you've probably done a gig every single day, on average, for that amount of time, and you need some time off. And then obviously that coincided with the pandemic, so everyone's having time off anyway. And I'm at home and um, really enjoying not being up there every night. And then you do think, well, why am I doing this? You know, why, 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 why am I putting them through that as well? Why, you know, they're, they're all buying tickets and sitting down to watch a show and I'm just going like, fuck yeah, you're just no shit. Like, it's embarrassing and it's, and it's shit for them. Um, so yeah, just like, uh, kind of realising that, yeah, you're going to have to change and how, how are you going to do that? 
There's a moment in the show, which I, I texted you the interval to tell you uh, how therapeutic I was finding it, which I don't think you got that message till afterwards. And as yeah, soon as I'd sent it, I was like, that may not have come across like a compliment. I mean, I did say, you know. I saw it after, it was but, fine, it was nice. But the therapeutic aspect of it, as someone who is perpetually having a crisis about comedy, as a lot of us are, but it's a particularly weird time for me. I'm having a, a maybe a crisis is too strong a word, no one else cares, but... Um, no, but it feel, that's how it feels. That's how it feels. Yeah. How am I doing it? What am I doing? Do I still want to do it? Do I get from it what I used to? The thing I keep saying is that I got into it for the adventures and I feel like I've had some of the adventures through an ADHD lens. You might go, it's not as novel as it was and it is mm -hmm. holding my interest less in certain circumstances, certain situations. What was so therapeutic in that show was you... Well, when you talk about having... Like, I don't want to be on stage. I, and I'll, I'll butcher the line, but the sentiment being, I don't want to be on stage, but the only place worse than this is being you. And oh my God, I just, yeah. like me and the two comics who were behind me both like hooted at that because that's right. That's right. You know, we, we're all, because you, everyone can be, we can all be so passionate about comedy and like I've made my whole fucking life about it. That's part of the crisis. If you go, if I stop doing this, what the fuck am I? It's, yeah, it's yeah. so woven round my identity and how I see myself and all the rest of it. Torch inward, inward, it's a series of torches. That idea that like, I don't want to be here, but the only place worse than here is being down there. And that sense of like, you just nailed that yearning of like, if not this, I don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. And I suppose with that in mind as well is the, the, the empathy of... I did, I said, I'm trying to make two points at once, but the other bit that I remember in, in particular from that section was really you talking about how when you talk about all of the, the, the things you're accusing the audience of and you there's a really nice little kind of double rhythm where you go, which, by the way, is exactly how I do it. You know, people sat in audiences staring at you, which, by the way, is exactly how I watch comedy. Yeah, yeah. Seeing it from our point of view and really drilling into the relationship between audience and performer and who is responsible for what and what the stakes are. Again, you know, the, yeah. the stakes for you and the stakes for us. Um, someone pointed out that recently in the Facebook group that I'm over fond of saying, that's not really a question, but do something with that. <laughs> so sure. I'm going to find another way to do it. Th yeah. That idea of like, I, I don't necessarily want to be up here, but I don't want to be down there. Yeah. And I don't really have the answer. Like you were saying, and a lot of people have been asking like, well, why does he still do it then? I don't really have an answer for that. I haven't figured that out yet. And, and I'm, you know, I, I know that I like making stuff. I really love making things and creating and and all that that's really fun um it's fun and it's satisfying and it's not anything necessarily more than that it's nothing chin strokey or um you know it doesn't make it doesn't improve my it doesn't make my uh uh kind of like opinion of myself it doesn't elevate it and you know, i just have to create and all that it's not it's not that it's really fun and i love it and i've loved it since i was a little kid and um it just kind of happened that stand-up was the, was the thing that took off because I was able to do it without relying on anyone else. You know, I think a lot of us like that. I remember in the open mic circuit meeting like people who I still know now who would all, we'd all tried something and been the driving force behind like a band or a, um, a, a theatre group or something like that, you know, um, tried to do writing with a writing partner and they were lazy or whatever it was 
And so we started doing this on our own. And then suddenly it accelerates because no one's, you know, not turning up at band practice. No one's uh, not learnt their lines. It's just you booking it, doing it yourself. So even if it isn't this thing of like, what I have to do is stand-up comedy, because that was not how I felt in the beginning. I wasn't like, I have to be a stand-up. I loved stand-up. I loved comedy. And from day one, comedy has been my favourite genre of anything. And like, it's been a huge part of my life. And when I discovered stand-up, it completely, you know, just changed everything for me. And it was all I wanted to watch. Um, so doing it, you know, and trying it out was quite a logical thing of someone who likes to try any creative things that he enjoys. But I wasn't like this would be my career at all. And then I found that I really enjoyed working on it and it was really satisfying to actually get to do something where, you know, I get up on stage, try it, didn't work, go away, change it, go, I think it's that, I think it's the way I said it change it, oh, that works, This is good. and actually being able to make stuff. Like, like we were saying with the pitching TV shows and no one's letting you make it, and then you go, oh, I, just, I need to make something. I, I want to stop just thinking about it. So suddenly I was able to actually do it, and you're it's the feedback straight away with comedy. And I do love stand-up. I love, I love talking about it. Like, you know... Nish and I, uh, during one of the you know, times in the pandemic where you know things opened up for a bit, went for a drink and we were talking about stand-up and halfway through we said, you're going to carry on doing this. You love this. And I, and I was like, I do love it. And, I, and, that, and that, that's not, you know, doesn't mean it's simple and a straightforward thing that, that they're, therefore I can get up and do it. But I wouldn't be doing this show if I didn't love it and didn't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I would just stop doing comedy and I wouldn't do it. And I'm doing this show because I do love it and I do want to keep doing it. So I think that's worth trying and, and, and getting better at. Um, and in order for that to happen, I think I need to do a show like this that acknowledges it all and lays it out for them and uh, analyzes it a little bit. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So coming up in the second half of this episode, I'm going to put your questions to James. So we'll get into that in a second. We're going to talk about Ghostbusters, Bo Burnham. We're going to talk about the Oscars uh, and uh, also other things as well. And I wish, I wish that I could share with you some of the inner Ghostbusters chat that we had after we cut the mic and the camera. But of course, I can't do that. But if you meet me in the street, I will. I'll try and do the most meaningful eyebrows ever 
um, in order to not betray any confidences, but also transmit some of the absolute juice of what it's like being on the set. That's a mean thing to say, and I shouldn't have said it, and I regret it, but let's let's imagine for a moment that I don't have time to go back and cut that out, so let's leave that in. Um, so let, let's get back to James. If you're not in the Insiders Club, you can join that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Uh, I've got big things afoot this week as I work on top secret project number one, uh, and for someone who has a lot of top secret projects, uh, that's... I mean, the fact it's risen to number one is very exciting. Let's see if I can maintain the novelty. Who knows? Um, if you are in Bath, then uh, come to Belly Laughs. Find out. I don't know. I've got nowhere. There's no call to action here. But there's this. Uh, I did a bunch of um, uh, they are charity gigs for a homelessness charity in Bath. And they take place in restaurants. And I don't know if they're all sold out, but there's some really fun lineups. And it's great for comics because we ping from one to the other. Um, so have, just have a Google of it and see if you can find anything. If you can find us. It's like the A-Team, basically, but for charity gigs in the city of Bath. Um, so so there's that. And also the other thing just to nudge you about is February the 22nd. I am triumphantly awful. How I mean, I, my kids would tell you I do do most things triumphantly. Um, but I am triumphantly returning to the Leicester Comedy Festival with the show that won last year's best show, best comedy show award, uh, Spoilers, which is my uh, non-depressing, upbeat, optimistic, challenging, but in a super gentle way that makes you feel great about your life and all your terrible choices. Um, my climate comedy show, Spoilers, the 22nd of February. Uh, you can find tickets for that in the show notes to this episode and indeed from stuartgoldsmith.com. So let's get back to this, the end, the final bit of this chat with the lovely and wonderful... Can we talk a little bit about the boy? Yeah, because that's one of the most talk about the th the show having a therapeutic quality and and an, an empathetic quality, whereby the I don't want to give stuff away, but the idea of the boy that you are protecting, the 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 youthful version of you that like this whole time I've been up on stage, I never realised, but the whole time the boy was up here with me and I was trying to protect him. Mm -hmm. God, I felt like, I mean, I don't think I was in tears, but I was definitely like, I'm going to be in tears in a minute because that completely speaks to me. And, uh, you know, I think anyone who's undergone a therapeutic journey involving their childhood self, as most journeys I imagine would, I'm constantly trying to protect the boy. Yeah. And, and so many of us must be. That is such an incisive way to look at it. It's such... It, like similarly to the thing where you talk about the love you have for your girlfriend and and wanting to protect each other's vulnerabilities and each other's younger selves it's like a, it's one of those things where you sort of go oh i mean that you should write a book about that let alone a, have it figure in a comedy show that's like what like a big meaningful thing um I just want to talk about the boy and your relationship to the boy because mm. i i don't know where my relate i here's the question Maybe part of why I'm having some concerns and challenges about my relationship with stand-up is I feel like I'm looking after the boy pretty well now. And I feel like I've worked out that it doesn't necessarily serve the boy to keep doing stand-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought it really did. I thought the boy had to have me do stand-up so yeah. that he'd feel worth something. Sure. And I've realised that he doesn't need that. Yeah, I, I think I'm that's... glad I stopped them because the goal of this isn't to make me cry. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's completely like, yeah, it, it is that thing where you, especially like during the lockdowns, I was like, oh, I'm looking after myself properly. Um, and it feels like a big part of looking after myself is not going on stage every night. 
and really realizing the because I did there's loads of stuff that's been cut out of the show because it's, I mean it's two hours as it is so like so you just like this is but, but there was there was some moments in lockdown there's a well I would do like some zoom gigs or something like we all did every now and again and I would really notice sometimes if I felt like I'd messed up something on the zoom um my anxiety levels just going like through the roof so it was and and the jump being so much higher because I was feeling so relaxed all the time at a level that I hadn't really felt for ages because I was doing gigs every single night so every single day there was this build up to the gig and then really intense anxiety and nerves before going on and then going on and kind of being all over the place mm -hmm. with nervousness anxiety fear insecurity all of that and then coming off and self-hatred and all of this and now I was just feeling all right and nice and just kicking around in the flat being in love and watching tv and going oh, I'd forgotten that watching tv is my favorite thing and just doing that and then like making dinner um you know and enjoying all those things and then I have a zoom gig say something to one of the other performers or whatever that I thought got, took the wrong way and then just feel through the roof anxiety about it and then afterwards be like in the flat like oh my god yeah and talking to my girlfriend about like I just feel like I've gone from like here to like way through that whereas before I think I was always operating around here anxiety wise so when I did that it would just go like that mm -hmm. and I'd notice that jump but now it's like boom like from from there and you do think like is this looking after me doing these oh, I don't know if it is me looking after myself doing these gigs because um doesn't seem to be feeling good and um so yeah again you just kind of go okay well we'll try because then what do you do do you either stop doing it altogether do you carry on doing it but decide not to have it matter as much because I think we're both people who it really matters that it's good is in our own personal standards of good and we want it to be decent we don't just want to go on and kind of fob them off with stuff that it does the job makes them laugh go home they'll forget about it who cares like we want to be doing stuff that's significant but we could if we wanted to do stuff that's a bit more disposable do that on autopilot it wouldn't matter to me as much i might not be as nervous before i go on stage i might not care about it as much as when i'm on there i wouldn't hate myself afterwards i've got to be okay with it but then i don't think i could do that in a minute i saw an interview with dave Grohl, and he was saying like man you know during Nirvana and those first two Foo Fighters albums, I just wanted everything to be perfect and everything to be like the best music ever. And it was so stressful all the time. And then third Foo Fighters album, I just made a conscious decision. Let's just have fun. You're here to have fun. Have fun with this. And I've enjoyed every single album we've ever made since then. And it's been amazing. I was like, that's great. Everything from the third Foo Fighters album on is shit. So like, <laughs> so that still matters to me. You know, and, I mean, Dave Grohl can, I'm sure, just show us the numbers and go, well, how can we have done bigger and bigger venues for every album? Sure. So, like, shut up. And, like, but, like, for me, I'm, like, artistically, Nirvana, first two Foo Fighters albums, fucking brilliant. I, want, I, I still am not ready to let go of that and wanting to make those. I'm not ready to make fucking one by one yet. I, I don't want to do that. 
and uh, and how does the boy feel about that decision? Does that feel yeah. does that feel in it his interest? Yeah, it feels like he's on board with that. I mean, I don't I don't know. I think I think you're still checking in each time. I'm very honest with myself about how I am feeling now before gigs, in the interval after gigs. You know, a big part of it is acknowledging how I feel. You know, I say on stage that I was for years telling myself I was excited when I wasn't. You know, I was nervous and scared and whatever, and. Part of this tour is just like, you know, let's just let, let's check in with that all the time. And how am I feeling about it? And is this sustainable? Because when you remove the option of bollocking the audience and throwing the gig back in their faces, um, you are left with, okay, what's really going on here? Because really the main problem wasn't that I did that. That was a symptom and then that symptom becomes the problem. So you, you, you're you just going like, oh, I've got to stop telling the audience their shit, blah, blah, blah. But actually that's that's because of other stuff that's going on. So if you stop telling them their shit and stop telling them like this gig shit and whatever, you still have those feelings that made you do that. I'm not on stage feeling brilliant every night. I'm on stage still feeling insecure, still feeling like that got less than normal. That person looks bored. Um, oh, I don't think this show is very good actually. I think my last show was better. And like, so that's all there, but you get to listen to that more and actually look at it and reflect on it and how do you actually feel about it, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that's like this ongoing is, is um, how, you know, how is this making me feel? Is that good? And right now the aim of the tour is if we can get through this whole tour without once flipping the table over. That's the goal. <laughs> Embarrassingly low bar. But like that's the that's the goal. And then hopefully that will enable me to look at these other things and go, okay, how do we deal with these things now? Do, are they ever going to go away? If they're not, is this worth carrying on doing? Because does that make you feel good? You, you know, you're protecting this in a child does that make them feel good like if this isn't possible then yeah maybe just just do a food podcast you know and, and that's fine um yeah i think i'd sooner stop than do shows that don't matter to me that i don't think are as nourishing for an audience i want there to be something there I'll, I'll be honest with you, yesterday, so like yesterday's show, in the interval, I went, yeah, maybe this is it. No, you stop. You're just going to stop. Because like, because really? this isn't making you feel good. You, you, went, you went out there, you didn't, that whole first half, you just felt like this show's not very good, actually. Oh, um, man. You know, you felt, you felt like, you know, uh, yeah, you just, you just felt like you, you it's, it was affecting like how you're feeling about yourself. Maybe we just like get to the end of this tour and knock on the head. And then at the end of the second half, I was like, that was fun. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't like the opposite, but like, I, I was like, you know, and I, and I knew as well that they don't necessarily know that as an audience. I'm that staggered to hear they, that. that they, they won't feel like that. They won't be sitting there thinking those things. And I know that every show I've ever done, there are people in the audience thinking this is shit. And there are people in the audience thinking this is brilliant. And there's everyone in between. 
Yes. And, and there is no actual measurement. There's, there's no nothing. Measurement. There's no, no one ever, no one ever, there's no one in heaven <laughs> kind of going tick, 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 you know, yeah. that that's what that one was. That's yeah, the yeah. percent. There's no date. There is no data. Yeah. And even if there is, like, you know, I was speaking to someone once, um, I won't name them, but like a film director who made a really big film that done really well years ago. And they were about to make another one. And they said to me, like, we're walking out and they, they kind of said, do you ever worry that you're only going to get remembered for one thing? And I was like, dude, if we get remembered for anything, that's fucking, like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, come on. Like, if, if you currently are standing here thinking that you've made something you're going to be remembered for, then fucking well done. Because most people, like, you know, so, like, that's, that's good going. Most filmmakers aren't getting remembered. So, like, uh, I feel like with this, you know, always having to, and I like, I like it in a way. I like the f- fact that I feel like I want this show to be better than the last one every time, and that's good. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to lose that. And I would rather, if I do lose that, I would rather just go. Okay, let's probably stop then. I'm staggered to hear that you were in the interval last night. I that's so fresh. Last night's show, sure, is so fresh in both of our minds. Mm-hmm. I can't believe, weirdly, I nearly, we were having sort of funny chats via WhatsApp before yeah. the show. And then during the interval, I nearly sent you another jokey thing. And I thought, I'm not going to do that just in case. <laughs> because, not that I think that you are particularly vulnerable, but I think yeah, you're yeah. vulnerable to yourself. And yeah. I thought, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to risk it because no. not that, in any, that, that decision was informed solely by my knowledge of you and not by the first sure. half at all. The first half was fucking brilliant. We hadn't heard any of that stuff before. It smashed us to bits. We as an audience absolutely, completely loved it. I'm stunned to hear that you were there thinking, well, maybe that's me, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, I don't even know what to say about that. It was sort of facile to go, hey, buddy, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I know you ended up in a positive place with it, as well you should. Yeah. But it, it's, 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 it is staggering to hear that, given that I was there and, hey, there's no data, but I've got data and I know how well it was and how mm-hmm. therapeutic and funny and brilliant and genuinely nourishing I found it. Yeah, I guess it's because, like, I mean, that's the good thing about doing uh, a show where you have taken your worst habit and you've made that, that's off the table now, that's not an option, you can't do it, is that you do, you are left with, you know, analysing what's actually going on. And I think, like, like last night... I can be like, okay, you basically, I can like look back at the whole tour now, which I've not never been able to do this because by now the tour would be littered with me throwing gigs. So there's no data for myself. I, I can't actually go what's going on because I know what's going on. I, I, I told them to fuck themselves. So that's why that went badly, blah, blah, blah. But, and then beyond that, I'm not really analysing it because I'm like, well, they were a bit quiet, so that's why I did it. But, uh, but like now I'm able to go, okay, start this tour. You cut, You had a show, but you weren't, you didn't like the show yet. And so you didn't take the audience's responses personally in Cardiff or Glasgow because you weren't, you didn't think it was good yet. You were still trying to make it, your uh, level of good, your version of good. So when they didn't laugh or they were a bit quiet, you weren't like they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It was kind of fine. And then and then I did Camden, expecting it to be easy, and I actually found Camden really hard. But again, still didn't think the show was good enough. So really knuckled down in Camden and worked. 
And then after that, Manchester, followed by Birmingham, followed by Dublin, were a joy. I loved it. It's the most enjoyable run of gigs on a tour I've ever had. It was 12 in a row, and I, lo I loved all of them. I felt I liked the show. I'm proud of it. I, I don't love the show yet, and I'm not like, and it's not finished yet, but like really, really loved it. And Dublin was like, the final night in Dublin is one of the best gigs I've ever had, and I, I just enjoyed myself so much. Again, don't think the show's finished. Don't wouldn't say I love the show, but I loved that gig, and I really enjoyed myself. And then I went to Brighton thinking, like, here we go, Brighton's always easy. And then Brighton felt, from my perspective on stage, incredibly difficult. And I didn't tell them that because I'm not allowed to. Every bit of me in the first half of the first Brighton show wanted to say to them, you all right? Where are you? What's, what's happened? Brighton's always n nice. Why are you not? Mm. Dublin was amazing. Why are you not this? I didn't say any of that, but then that makes you reflect. So I do know, I can look back and go, okay, you didn't like it, then you liked it, then these gigs were brilliant, and then Brighton felt awful by comparison because you had had these amazing ones that felt easy and you didn't really, you know, they were such a up for it crowd. Vicar Street's an amazing venue. The venue has a lot to do with it. And so it, you, you just flew and you had a great time. And now you're in a room that feels a little bit more difficult, but the audience aren't necessarily any less up for it. It feels harder to you on stage. That's not necessarily the reality of it. And you're able to go, okay, I hated that gig, but like, I didn't enjoy that gig. First Brighton gig, I did not enjoy it. But you feel the achievement of, though they don't know that, I still did the show for them. Um, and you are like, oh, and also a problem now is that I like the show and I think it's good. So when they're not laughing loads, I'm like, what the fuck's the matter with you? Yeah. Whereas yeah. like, Actually, they're not even aware they're not laughing that much. They don't know how much it usually gets. They don't know how much Dublin would pick up on the slightest eyebrow raise and laugh at it, you know, which is me being really spoiled there, yeah. you know. And then and then you go to Brighton and you do that and they, and they go, I, 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 you're like, what the fuck is it? Yeah, but so, like, <laughs> so like you're able to actually look back and do that. So Bristol yesterday, I was like, okay, you're coming off of Brighton. Brighton left you feeling uh, less confident in the show. And now you're here in Bristol and you're aware that you're putting a lot on this gig because this is the first one of the four and you want to get back on track and enjoy it. And you've done some work in progress, like 20 minute spots in this room and you always love it. So you're thinking in your head, this is going to be like Vicar Street again and da da da. And it was easier than Brighton, but not as easy as Dublin. And also I was feeling less confident. I wasn't walking on stage confident in the show. So there was that. And you, so you get to acknowledge all those things rather than just go, oh, what went wrong was I, th I threw the gig. Yeah, right. So okay. You're okay. Like, so even though you're still not feeling good on stage, you get to actually go, why am I not feeling good? It's actually all of these things. Yeah. And it might be other things. You know, sometimes it's like, I didn't get enough sleep last night. I didn't eat properly today. Uh, whatever the thing was. And then you go, okay, it was, it was those things. Or, you know, um, someone you know someone said something to me before went on and that wasn't very nice and then i had to go on and, you know you get to acknowledge all those things and, and and figure those out rather than it just being this one problem which isn't really wasn't really ever the problem do you do you have an internal kind of narrator do you have an internal system for if you catch yourself thinking but some of those thoughts that you described of like your mid gig thinking this isn't as nice as them. What's wrong with them? Oh, I mustn't say that. Oh, maybe I don't want to do this anymore. Maybe it's the show. Maybe it's my approach. Maybe it's the food. 
those things, do you have like tools or things that you can say to yourself that you can that you can kind of like one of one of mine is if I note if I'm having a bad gig, I'll be holding the mic too hard. And if I notice and then relax my grip on the yeah. mic, I'll start having a slightly less bad gig. Anything like that? Do you have any kind of physical or or kind of internal narrative things that you can do? Yeah, I guess I, I can I can try and make it more fun for myself on stage, but then that everything is a roll of the dice, I think. <laughs> so it's like in Brighton, the first night in Brighton, I was like, oh, they're quieter than I was expecting. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be looser. Maybe that will make it better. And I felt like actually it made it worse. Because then by the end, I was like, I don't think that was the show. I don't think they got the show. They got me kind of doing the show, but fucking about. And they didn't even go for the fuckabouts that much. Mm. So it seemed like quite a baggy uh, show. And that's not what I've written. And I misrepresented it. And then the second night in Brighton, I was like, before going on, like, right, we're going to tighten this up. We're going to perform it with energy. Do it like you're filming it. And then their reaction doesn't matter. And it was better the second night but then I struggled the third and the fourth nights. But like um, yesterday it was more, so yesterday I, it was almost the opposite. Like I was like, okay, let's just stick to it, do the show. And then there was a bit in the first half where I improvised a little bit and I felt the audience relax and it'd be really fun. So oh, maybe that's what we should do, actually mess around more tonight. But then at the same time, you know, I know that the material without messing around is two hours. So you kind of like, yeah. How much do you want to push that? Yeah, because there is that. There is the because last night almost no one heckled. There yeah. There was one crap one just before the end, and yeah. then there was one quite fun one that you did something with at the very end, and then it, it really ended beautifully. But we were talking last night about how sometimes they do heckle loads. Yeah. So it, you must be in a position of kind of going, oh, it'd be good if the show was only an hour and thirty long, and then I'd have loads of space. Yeah. And, if, and it could overrun or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's stuff I can kind of cut out if I want to. So if there yeah. are a lot of heckles, I can go, okay, we fill it here, yeah. here and here and, and, do, and do that. And sometimes the heckles make it quite interesting and sometimes they don't and you have to be aware of like what to acknowledge and what not to acknowledge. Um, but um, actually, to, to the point earlier, like, I, I think that a lot of it last night was um, trying to have more fun with the delivery, the stuff that doesn't take up time. And uh, just go like deliver it a bit different, yeah. and deliver this story a bit differently. And uh, it doesn't matter if that's how you do it from now on. Just do it. And there was a couple of bits that were like, okay, that's more fun, and maybe we'll keep it like that, and maybe we won't. But like, um, still engaging with it and being actively involved with it, I think is what I consciously do on stage. Is like, don't just go into autopilot because that's when you really risk getting bored, and then that's when you really risk, you know, stropping. So if you just completely, if you're still engaged with how can we make this bit better, let's mess around with this, let's play with this. Yeah. Then that gives me a better chance of like, you know, yeah, steering the boat or whatever. Um, we've got a load of listener questions, which I'd love to do because they're always fun. Before we do that, um, uh, I remember my question from earlier on, but we've covered it. Um, what would be your law? Do you remember Millican on this podcast on like episode six or something? Yeah. She said Millican's law and she explained what Millican's law was. And I thought I should start asking more people what their law is. What, what was her law? Her law was uh, no matter how badly the gig went, you can't feel bad after 11 a.m. Yeah. But no matter how well it went, you can't feel good. Like you can't swagger around. about after this after. The, the last night in Brighton, Sam Campbell and Joe uh, Wilkinson came to see the show and they came backstage. And I was like, 
And one of them mentioned, but they didn't even mention it as Millikan's Law. They mentioned it as this thing. So it's like a thing now in the comedy zeitgeist <laughs> as well, you know, yeah, people say it's like past 11 o'clock, you shouldn't feel there right about go. it. I was like, my emotions don't have a fucking <laughs> cut off with, with, with the time. Well done, Millican, if she's yeah. doing that. But like, uh, I'm, I, I couldn't do that. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, at the minute, my law is literally just, just don't. Don't tell, don't tell them it, it, it gets going shit. I mean, that, 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 that's, that, that's like, you know, and it's something that some comics have just naturally been able to do since they were open spots. Yeah. And some comics have never been able to do. Uh, and, you know, there are comics who have been going way, 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 way longer than me, way, way more successful than me, who haven't learned to not do it yet. And I look at them and I'm, that makes me scared that I'm gonna, I don't want to be that. And I saw I saw some newer comedians doing it at a gig when I was in the audience, and uh, I remember thinking, "Yeah, I, I I want to tell them stop doing that," but I haven't learned to stop doing it yet, so I I, I can't tell them that. But this feels fucking shit in the audience. Like I was like, to be told that it's going badly, to be told yeah. that they're a bad audience. You're sitting there going. Oh. You know, because the individuals aren't thinking we're an audience. Yeah, we're just thinking you're, just, me. you're just watching something, and yeah. you know, actually, a lot of the time as an audience member, you're not really clocking everything. Like, you're just like, I like this, or I like that one, didn't like that one, whatever. This is nice, and what? And then when when the person starts going like, really, you don't like that? Also, like I've never seen a comic do that, and um, kind of go and not have the answer for them. I'm sure every time I've said to audiences what the fuck is going on i bet they know exactly what's going on and they could have told me but but it would be too harsh to go i'll tell you what's going on (laughs) you mumbled that that fucking setup and we didn't know what you said so that's what went on and and also what went on is that that word you used just there is way too fucking harsh so yeah, I didn't yeah, laugh yeah. at the punchline because you were too mean. And it's so like, maybe, you know. maybe ACAS's law should be, if you ask them what's wrong with them, you should only ask them what's wrong with them if you're prepared for them to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you're prepared for it. Yeah. Um, uh, here we go. Here's some, I'd love to know a bit more about Springleaf and about what stage of production it is. We'll do quick fire because the kids are going to return from school any minute. Yeah, great. Uh, we've We've got like, about three more cast members to record and then we're into the editing and the mixing of it. I've enjoyed it so much. I'm very excited about it. Does heckling, post Heckler's Welcome, does heckling still bug you as badly as it did? Yeah. Exactly the same. Um, Do you feel more equipped to deal with it mentally though? Not to deal with it in the room, but you feel more equipped to, like it bugs you, but you're better equipped to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And the whole thing isn't like, uh, let's change my brain completely so that I like it it's let's change my response to this thing that I don't like it's like you know when I say about the baggage carousel I will never like the baggage carousel at airports but if I get stressed out by it every single time that's lunacy it's going to it's going to start every holiday with on a downer and I have to just accept all these people are idiots and they're going to do it wrong and so I can just stand by and then get my bag and go and make the best of bad situation any heckler, even at this show, a lot of the time, I'm like, shut the fuck up, you fucking dickhead. <laughs> but like, but 
I, I know that that's not the, the right response, not the, the helpful response and to deal with the problem. You could do a version of Heckler's Welcome, which is like in an arena and you deliberately kill anyone that heckles. And it's a way of like trawling through all of the comedy fans in the country yeah. Yeah. such that anyone that is moved to heckle in a show called Heckler's Welcome is immediately destroyed. <laughs> Um, the trap door. I really enjoyed Ali Panting says I really enjoyed you mention on Trusty Hogs I've never heard of that oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful podcast I've been on it I enjoyed you uh, hearing you mention on Trusty Hogs about how watching Inside by Bo Burnham made you feel like shit for a while because you felt like you'd never make anything that good it's not that I'm happy you felt like shit but lots of us have that feeling you describe when we watch your stuff and it's just somehow helpful to know that even you you're one of the best comics on the planet you can still struggle with creative envy unhelpful comparisons feeling inferior etc to use a Stuart Goldsmithism that's not really a question but could you talk about it a bit a bit more please um I did, is that a question i did that's not something you can answer in a quick fire way people are pleased and encouraged yeah. by the fact that you also see other comics the way they see you yeah and i see yeah i see anything like yeah it's not even just comedy you see a film that is like immaculate or an album or whatever and you think oh, i'm never gonna make anything that good um and let's imagine what dave Grohl's gonna be feeling watching this with his, head David, his, sorry. with his head in his hands. You've, you've made multiple <laughs> albums that uh, are going to outlive all of us. Um, yeah. um, I don't want to... Jay Fountain says, I don't want to ask him anything. I just want to say thank you for cold lasagna. It was really important. He may not accept it, but that show was really helpful for a lot of us struggling with depression and suicidal ideation. Thank you, James. 16 heart emojis. Thank you. 17 heart emojis back at you. <laughs> um, uh, that we've covered that. Bill Dewar says he's a shoe in for any forthcoming Steve Davis biopic. No, I'm not. Nope. I auditioned for Steve Davis in the Hurricane Higgins um, biopic and I did not get the part. So Amazing. What else have you auditioned for that you didn't get? A lot of stuff. Uh, that Judd Apatow, the bubble thing. Um, the last series of Black Mirror and, and the part went to Michael Sarah playing Michael Sarah. <laughs> uh, the Barbie movie, the part went to Will Ferrell. Come on. Like... <laughs> Why, 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 even, why are they getting me in the room? But uh, I, like, I like the auditioning, though. That's fun. It's learning. Ghostbusters? Yeah, I auditioned for that. I got that. So yeah, that's can, right. you, yeah, can yeah. you talk about that? Is that public domain? Is that yeah, public? yeah, yeah. People know I'm in it. Yeah, when yeah, does it come out? I, I don't know when it comes out now because of all the strikes and everything oh, yeah. that's going on. But like, um, it'll be out at some point. What was the best bit about filming it? Best bit about filming it, I mean, every day just feels a little bit Christmassy, doesn't it? Like, um, uh, can I say stuff about it that uh, doesn't just any any time you're doing a scene with one of the iconic things from your childhood uh, that are still in are still in it now, you are like, this is fucking cool. Like, like you are just there going, this is great. And there was pretty much every day I'd look at the, you know the sheet of what we're going to do the scene where it's set or whatever like you're oh we're going to be in the firehouse you know this is cool <laughs> so yeah there's like it was, it was very fun can you invent a clickbait rumour about the filming of Ghostbusters to do with where the plot goes there's actually a real ghost in it at one point it was um, accidental we caught it on camera what was his reaction to his Cinderella role having a moment at the Oscars oh, I thought it was brilliant I mean I was actually a bit gutted because I usually got a uh, our mutual friend Tom Neenan's house to watch the Oscars live at his Oscar party and that year either I couldn't make it or he wasn't doing it or uh, I couldn't make it I was, I was at my parents house and uh, and, uh, and um, yeah I just uh, I think I stayed up and I watched some of the Oscars but I, I missed I fell asleep before my bit 
So I missed that and the slap. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, the next day it was like, oh God, like all this stuff. But I, I, like, I didn't get to see it. I still haven't seen it, actually. The, 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 the Cinderella popping up in the Oscars montage and me being in the clip. But uh, yeah, pretty chuffed with it. How's your mum, says Ruth Kilcullen. I love hearing about his childhood meals on the pod. Reminds me of simpler times. Oh, that's nice. She's very well. She's, uh, I think, uh, the other day, um, I got sent a photo of my mum eating a salad and my dad eating some deep fried Twinkies <laughs> at the same time. Um, uh, 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 last one. <laughs> I'm not going to do this one from Donovan Keogh Jones. Shout poppadoms or bread at him. He loves that. Of course. Yeah. Um, Sarah Mahag says, does he know how good Heckler's Welcome is? Um... I don't know, that's a, that, that's a trick. That's a, that's a trick. She's a question. good egg. I know. It's not a trick yeah. question. She obviously uh, loves it. Well, I think I do, but then it's different. So I'm like, it's it's this good, and it's not as good as I want it to be yet. Um, but uh, I don't know. Not uh, maybe no. I, I, I think until I film them and watch them and edit it the way I want it and watch it, I don't really have a thing of like this is how good it is, and maybe that's why. For a lot of years, I do just throw the gigs and stuff because I don't feel like I know how good it is in terms. And when I say that, I don't mean they're brilliant and I don't know how good it is. I mean, I literally don't know how if it's good or not. And so um, you are more prone to feeling insecure on stage. You think, oh, maybe maybe this is actually shit. And the way they're reacting to this now is because it's shit. And, uh, and so then, you know, you throw your toys out the pram. So like, um, but when I get to film it, edit it down, watch it back, get it the way I want it, then I'll know how good it is. Then I feel like it's this, you know, the same with writing a book or this audio sitcom, whatever it is, when you get the finished thing, you get to look at it and then I know how good I think it is. Um, and some of it falls short and some of it meets my goals with it and whatever it is. So, there are certain things I feel this show's missing at the minute that I'm trying to find, and I think that's good. I think if I wasn't doing that at the minute, that would be probably quite bad for the show. But um, I definitely feel like it's worth people's time at the minute. I don't feel like I'm, you know, ripping them off or being a cheeky little boy. So that was James. I've been sitting on that episode for ages and in many ways I wished I'd punted it out immediately in low quality just so we could have got an exclusive about that Ghostbusters stuff. But not to worry. Uh, We continue to live. We continue to learn. And as I say to my children sometimes if they're upset at bedtime, tomorrow is another day and we will find another way. Is that striking a chord for you? Because I got that from some... Australian cartoon I think that used to be shown on Saturday mornings in the UK when I were a lad and it's what I remember is it was about an echidna trying to cross the road over and over again was it called I want to say it was called Kazuya Can but obviously it wasn't called that (laughs) Um, what was it called answers on a postcard and then pop the postcard in the bin for me or the recycling right so <laughs> james continues to be on tour with heck right, you know i have it's been a while since i've recorded some blurbs 
It's been a few weeks, I'll be honest, and it's so nice to be here in the freshly tidied cellar, quietly going mad on my own. I'm getting a thermal imaging survey of the house on Monday. I'll pop a little video of that up for you. Um, James continues to be on tour with Heckler's Welcome, including dates at London's Harold Pinter Theatre this weekend, if you've heard this in time, or maybe last weekend if you didn't, soz. Uh, for more info on what he's up to, go to jamesacaster.com slash gigs. Presumably he has some sort of mailing list whereby you get first look at things. I don't know, sort of thing that a sensible... Sort of, that's the sort of thing I do because I, do, I don't command an audience of millions of people. Whereas presumably, does he need to do a mailing list? We should have talked to him about this. Can't he just snap his fingers? Can't he just sort of turn up and then the Whisper network activates and suddenly it's full? I don't know. Um, and that's why I'm not a, a producer <laughs> because that's the sort of shit you're supposed to know. Springleaf continues. Uh, you can also download Off Menu if you've heard of it um, and you can get those wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember, go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for the full video special and um, more news coming soon on exciting ways to uh, to support the podcast. All right. Cheerio. There's, I mean, there should be a post amble now, but I haven't prepared one. I'm working. Me and Callum are now. Oh, I haven't done the thank yous. Uh, producer Callum co-produced this show. We're going great guns. He's doing some brilliant work. And this is weird because obviously he's listening to this. Well done, Callum. I like you. <laughs> um, we're doing with uh, we, we, we've, man. He's good. And uh, he we're co-producing the show now, which means he's doing loads of stuff. But one thing he hasn't done. This is not a criticism, Callum. I know you can hear this. One thing he hasn't done is tell me what I should say for the post amble. Of course. How could he possibly? But what I've done is gleefully tick off all the bullet points he kindly prepared for me and I haven't thought about anything to say. Hang on, I'll pause it and have a think. Nope, it's been about 10 minutes of real time and I've got nothing. <laughs> I could talk about being back in the saddle after these gigs at Belly last last night. So nice to nip from, you know, one gig to another to another and, uh, and you know, chuck some new stuff out. It's quite exciting to be, you know, doing new stuff. I can't say writing new stuff. I've barely written anything. But, um, you know, in my increasing... No, this is... No, I've, just, I've got nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing. I've had a lovely break. I helped my son build um, an incredibly complex uh, Lego Dreams treehouse. Great days. And I also bought Hero Quest for myself for Christmas, which, if you, if you don't know it, it's uh, it was a game I played when I was sort of 10 or 11 years old. It's like a, a, a gateway drug to Dungeons and & Dragons. And um, I loved it then. And I got it for myself uh, and I played a two hour game of it with the Boutros and a couple of, um, uh, well, my mates. They're supposed to be his mates and then <laughs> they fell through. So got some of my mates over. And I will say, if you're considering a, a, a role playing game aimed at 14 plus people, if you're considering trying to play it with a, a sort of seven, nearly eight year old. Yes, that's painful if you're just catching up. He's nearly eight now. Um, I will say that the we sort of met in the middle. It was quite fun. It's not that the content is beyond him or even the reading, bless him. It's just paying attention to something for two hours is quite a commitment uh, for me, let alone to him. And from my perspective, now I've done a bit of D&D. &D, this is whiffle. Cut it. No, leave it in. The, now I've done a bit of D&D. &D, the choices uh, are limited. It's basically move, hit or cast a spell. And uh, only two of the characters can cast spells. It's not very good, is it? And the other big news, the other big family news is that Future Girl, nearly said a real name there, my daughter, now five, painful I know, um, is, is just blossomed into the most ridiculous, silly, wonderful sense of humour kid that you could ever imagine. She's just so lovely. And I think I've, I think it's been a few years of her kind of, I mean, I've talked about this on stage, her base position being, no daddy, you go over there, which is not what you expect from your beautiful daughter. I sort of thought there'd be a lot more I love you, Daddy, give me a cuddle. But she's very like, no, I've got my own space. And hey, I respect that. 
But um, just in the last six months, and particularly noticed over Christmas, she went giddy for Christmas. And also she's just really, our relationship has really blossomed in a way that I, I mean, this is just soppy now, but um, I hung on in there and uh, and now she thinks I'm amazing uh, to the extent that it annoys her mum <laughs> that uh, that when I go away, the kids all lose their minds because I'm going to work. And that this is not fair. You can't go to work. Uh, and uh, my wife is very much like, thanks, kids. Chopped liver over here. Um, and that after, uh, you know, five, eight years, five years for both of them, five years of my wife being the main guy is... Uh, I mean, it's absolutely sweet. <laughs> anyway, um, that will have to pass for a post amble because I didn't plan it. Do you remember a couple of times? Ago, oh, I can tell you who's coming up. Let's quickly do that. You'll all have switched off by now. But for the two of you still listening, Ian, hi. And whoever else, uh, who do we reckon still listening? Ba -ba 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 John. Um, Ian and John, hi. And anyone else who happens to still be in here. Shall I, you know, some podcasts read a list of um, like names of people who've subscribed to the Patreon. Um with me, I think I could just sort of waffle for so long that I end up just... <laughs> I can read a list of names of people who are likely to be listening to this bit. If you bothered listening to this and made it through the last four minutes of guff, um, just tweet me at ComComPod. Just say, here, and you can look forward in a few days to me replying to all of you and going, what, what's this about? Because <laughs> I never remember. Oh, big post amble coming up one day on memory. Oh, fascinating journey with uh, exploring memory at the moment and how little of it I seem to have. But, well, that'll never come up again for obvious reasons. So for the benefit of John, Ian, and whoever else is still listening at this point... Now it's gone now. Forgot my original point. Christ, on a bike. Oh, people coming up. Susie McCabe coming up soon. Absolute blazing episode. Mawan Rizwan. It's an absolute stonker. Leo Reich. It's fucking... God, God it's like crystallised. It's brilliant. And um, the problem is... They're all, all of the ones I've been doing so uh, recently. Oh my God, Janine Haruni, fantastic. All of the ones I've been doing recently, all of them, and the other ones that I've got in the can as well that I've not mentioned, um, they're all so good. It's very hard to say to you, oh, look out for this one, because I sound disingenuous, because it's like, they're all absolutely A-grade. and uh, But they really are. Not to mention, Dara O'Brien returns to the podcast next week. Can't wait to record that one. I've got, oh my God, listen, I will say this in advance, which is something I don't normally do. I've got Di Henwood coming onto the podcast. Di Henwood is an incredible act. One of the nicest, happiest and most positive people in comedy. Um, and he is in some dire straits health-wise and is just dealing with it like a champ. He's a Kiwi comic. Uh, I worked with him, I mean, a long, long time ago now um, at the Christchurch World Buskers Festival. And he just is like... It's just crazy famous in New Zealand. And we had one of those lovely things whereby I had no idea who he was, really, because um, he's, you know, he doesn't have a profile, particularly in the UK. So he's like, stop him in the street famous over there. But it's one of those lovely things about touring as a comic when you get to sort of see people and you get to chat to them on a particular level because you've got no idea that they're crazy famous. Um, and he is just so just wonderfully smiley and just radiates peace and joy and what have you. He is coming up on the show. I'm so excited to have him. Of course, this will be subject to his energy levels and whether it's um, whether it's possible for him. But assuming we can go through with it, that's in a couple of weeks. So um, give well, uh, yeah, yeah, more than a couple of weeks. But if you have questions for Di Henwood, if you're a Kiwi listener or you know him, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere or have seen him around and about on his travels, any questions for Di Henwood, get in touch via the usual channels, which these days is either Twitter or the uh, the ComCom Facebook group. So loads of great stuff to come. And thanks, John and Ian, for listening this far. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.